Israelis have to do the election over again? Are you kidding me? No. No, I'm not. Welcome to Mideast News Brief. Welcome, welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us for this Saturday, June 1st, 2019, horribly obnoxious edition of Mideast News Brief. I am your host, Winston R. Holland. You know, and this is a great life lesson for all of us. Sometimes things, things don't turn out the way we want them to, right? They, they simply don't. Uh, many things in my life have not gone as anticipated, yet I would also say many things have been much better than anticipated as well. So that's kind of part of life, right? But I'm reminded of that old Italian maxim that says, from the same flower, the bee extracts honey and the wasp gall. From the same flower, the bee extracts honey and the wasp gall. Gall. So guys, you get the quote of the week early this week. You got it like right out of the gate. So uh, spoiler alert, no quote of the week at the end. Uh, you, you just got it. So uh, I think that maxim pretty well illustrates that it really comes down to what we do with the situation that is given to us, right? Recall when Frodo told Gandalf he wished the ring had never come to him and Gandalf responds just so beautifully with, so do all. Uh, actually, you know what? Why don't we just listen to it? Why don't we just listen to it? Uh, because in my mind, it's one of the most beautiful moments, maybe the most beautiful moments in cinema history, and is a great overall encouragement to us all, and I think would be an encouragement to the aforementioned topic that we are going to be discussing today. Michael? Go ahead and play that, please. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Oh boy, that is an encouraging thought, isn't it? <laughs> in, in, in the midst of great darkness and being overwhelmed by evil, Gandalf recognizes a much larger plan at work, a much bigger plan at play. So why all this? Okay, I'm being way over dramatic. I really am, and I fully admit it. But any excuse that I have to introduce a Lord of the Rings clip, I'm going to take it. So why all this? Why the need to stay positive? Well, I really could not believe it when I, I checked the news on Wednesday and discovered that for the first time in Israel's 3,500-year history, They have to redo the election they had just had on April 9th. Yes, let me say that again. The Israelis have to redo 
their election in their something that's never happened in their 3,500-year history. Now, okay, I admit they've actually only been a democracy for 71 years, but uh, 3,500 years is a, is a bit more dramatic, and it's actually still true. But, oh, and by the way, guys, if it sounds a bit like I'm broadcasting from an amphitheater, I just moved into a new studio, and we don't quite have the sound absorption that we need. Right, Michael? We, we, we need a bit, uh, <laughs> we need a little bit more. So the floors are actually tile. I do have a big... Uh, carpet, but we uh, seriously need some sound absorption, but we don't have time to do that. And this is actually my last broadcast before I head out on my family vacation. So we just, I, we're getting it done. So bear with me. We're going to sound a little bit like an amphitheater today, but that is going to be resolved in future broadcasts. So imagine going through a bloody election season, right? As basically elections are these days. Imagine, I mean, especially here in the U.S., where our election season, our presidential election season, is two years long. It's way too long. Does anybody else agree with me, Michael? You, agree. Michael agrees with me. This is way too long. It is ludicrous, guys. We have other things to live for. <laughs> then, oh my gosh, it's just way too long. In Israel, you know how long it is? About three months, three to four months. We need a little bit of that. Now, that being said, Israel is about the size of New Jersey, whereas the United States is not. So obviously the candidates have a lot more ground to cover thanks to the Electoral College, right? If it wasn't for the the Electoral College, they'd spend all their time in New York, Los Angeles, and Houston, right? Thanks to the Electoral College, they have to care about like the whole country. Um, One of the reasons why I'm in favor of keeping the Electoral College. But, But still, imagine you're going through a bloody election season. Um... And the results come in. These are the results. Uh, Likud comes ahead. Blue and white's a little behind. Uh, ultimately, President Reuven Rivlin invites Netanyahu to join the, uh, to form a government. And um, they have to redo it. So the question is why? Um, and what are the implications? Because it, it has sprawling implications, including the very thing that I talk about pretty often on this broadcast, which is the deal of the century, which the economic part of the deal of the century was going to be released at the end of June, which was wonderful for a few reasons. One, it's right around the corner. Two, it's not being released while I'm on my family vacation, which is something I was concerned about. Um, and, uh, but that's not happening. That's not going to be happening. Why? Because... According to the uh, Kushner and his team, it's simply too volatile, uh, too important to release during an Israeli election season. So unfortunately, we're gonna have to wait till like after September or something. From what from what I'm hearing, now that news could change, but from what I'm hearing, we're gonna have to wait till like the end of September at the earliest before we see the stinking plan, which is annoying. But you know what? Uh, I, I trust that perhaps it is not the right time for the plan. And maybe the, uh, maybe the delay in Israeli elections is a good thing overall for a few reasons that I'm going to try to get in as we, as we talk about this. But first, 
You need to subscribe to Mitty's News Brief on iTunes, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or just tell Alexa to play the Mitty's News Brief podcast. And don't forget to leave a five-star review wherever you leave five-star reviews because you love the show voraciously. I know Michael does. Michael's my intern. He has to love it voraciously. Also, please give us a like on Facebook at Mitty's News Brief and on Twitter at Mitty's Briefing. And send love, hate, differing viewpoints, petty, or embarrassingly accurate insults to Brief at gmail.com. If you send negative email, do not worry. My safe space will be violated, and I will be so emotionally unstable, I will have to protest and force my professor to delay, or rather simply dissolve, my final exams. If he doesn't do that, then he's a racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe, and of course, an Islamophobe. Michael protested that. It was great. He got out of exams uh, at, U- at UT, so good for Michael. Um, also, I am going to be gone, like I mentioned before, the next two Fridays, but have no fear. Mideast News Brief will still be coming your way as I will be broadcasting a pre-recorded two-part interview with missionary to Lebanon and recording artist Thani Abuhamid, who you may remember from my fascinating interview on episode seven. Our interview over the next two weeks will be a discussion about what the Bible has to say about the modern state of Israel. Is May 14th, 1948, Israel a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? Is it just a fluke? Is it somewhere in between? Tune in to the discussion that will be airing part one on Friday, June 7th, 2019, and part two on Friday, June 14th, 2019. You will not want to miss it. We had a great time during the interview. I learned a lot and believe you guys will as well. Uh, what do you think, Michael? Or Were you on the phone the entire time or are you actually listening to the interview? So he, he is a college kid, so you, you don't know. You don't know. Because, I mean, once he gets sounds and everything said, he can kind of coast, you know. But uh, I bet he, I think he was listening to part of the interview. Okay, he says he was. Okay, that's good. That's good. Um, if I can get a, a college guy to listen to, to part of that interview, I'm excited. I actually even know of a, of a high schooler who listens to this broadcast from time to time and enjoys it. So that was a shock to me. But uh, hey, thanks for listening. All right. So as I mentioned before, Israel has to go back to the polls on September 17th. Why did this happen? Who was responsible for this? <sighs> of course, this is politics. So a lot of blame is being thrown around, uh, but we can squarely put the problem, either for good or for ill, on one man. And that one man is former defense minister and Knesset member Avigdor Lieberman. So I'm going to use, there was a great piece out of Tablet Magazine at tabletmag.com entitled Avigdor Lieberman's Risky Bet. I'm, I'm going to kind of use this article as a guide. This is really the only topic I think we're going to talk about today. There are a few other things. If I have time, I might jump in, but I'm really trying to keep this at an hour. So I'm kind of learning that I have to kind of limit uh, the number of things that I talk about if I want to stay within an hour because I'm kind of long-winded as it is, and so I need to uh, narrow down the, the number of topics. So... Um, Like I said, I want to use this as a guide, and we'll fill in the details. This is by Lyle Leibovitz, and of course, all of these articles, uh, this article and any other articles referenced will 
be put up at midisnewsbrief.com in the show notes of this podcast. So the article starts off basically with a story. May 2016, Avigdor Lieberman, he's a member of the Knesset, uh, sat down for an interview and on a stage in Beersheba. And he's a pretty blunt guy, so this is what he came out and said. And here's what he said. I'm telling you, he thundered, and you can take me at my word. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, when a politician says something like that, even if, you know, he might even think like that he's correct. You've got to be careful. Um, yeah, I mean, he might even have been honest in his head when he said that. Um, and then found out some information in between. But anyway, you can take me at my word, and everything here is recorded. If I am the Minister of Defense, I give Mr. Hania 48 hours. Either you return the bodies and the civilians, or you die. As far as I'm concerned, you can order yourself a spot in the nearest cemetery. Strong words on a stage, in public, broadcast, uh, speaking to Ismail Haniya, who was, who was a leader in the Hamas terrorist organization that occupies the Gaza Strip, who this guy basically refused to deliver two bodies of Israeli soldiers who were killed back in 2014. Right? Israelis were excited about this. This is tough talk. Um, he's going to assassinate. You give us the, the bodies of our slain. And that is very, very important in Jewish culture, by the way. And I, I remember many years ago, hearing that uh, Netanyahu gave up some terrorists so that he could get the bodies of, of uh, slain soldiers. And I remember thinking to myself, what? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> well, you're giving up live terrorists just to get back dead bodies? I, I was really beside myself. I've loved Netanyahu. I've always loved Netanyahu. But I did simply did not understand that. Well, as, as you may know, the Jews believe in a bodily resurrection, and the bones of the deceased is very important to them theologically. I'm not saying I agree with the policy at all, because I don't agree with that policy, but uh, from their mindset, from a religious viewpoint, having the remains of their dead soldiers is so important that they're even willing to give uh, terrorists back up uh, at times to, to get those remains. It's, it's truly, truly remarkable. So, Lieberman makes this threat, 48 hours go by, then another two days, a week, and then a year. The, uh, Hania, the leader of Hamas, did not uh, meet any of the conditions that were given by Lieberman, and Lieberman did not make good. He did not, uh, he was not able to get Hania assassinated, and, and Lieberman even came back and said, many promises were made, including by me, which were not backed up. So why do we mention this? It's very interesting because it's juxtaposed to what has happened in the Israeli election. And the article goes on to say, When Lieberman's refusal to join Netanyahu's new coalition forced the Knesset to disband just days after it was sworn in, thrusting the nation into another costly and tumultuous election season, some in the Israeli press revisited the anecdote and wondered what made the politician who caved before Hamas, the terrorist group, stand firm against Netanyahu, his fellow countrymen, with whom he disagrees on little of substance. 
Immediately after Netanyahu had won his fifth term as prime minister, back in the halcyon days of last month, Lieberman promised his support, announcing he would not endorse anyone else for the office. Why then did he turn his back on Netanyahu at this critical juncture? Okay, so let's, let's dive in here on, on really what is going on. Several questions arise, and those who may not follow Israeli politics closely, which is about 99.99% of people in this country, I would imagine, may be curious about how in the world history was made yesterday. But first, if you love Mideast News Brief and want us to be able to grow beyond our mere once-a-week illustrious news summary, you can support us via PayPal. Yes, there are much bigger plans for MENB when the funding allows. Just look in today's show notes and you will see a link to donate. There are quite a few expenses involved with putting on a show like this, and any support, either one-time or recurring, is a huge blessing and helps us to pay for the equipment, rent, and more. All right, so first, let's quickly recap how Israeli elections work. So remember, it's very different than in the U.S. You vote for a party. You don't vote for a candidate. And the party that wins the most seats in the Knesset, there are 120 seats in the Knesset, the party that wins the most seats in the Knesset is not going to have the majority. Right, there are way too many political parties. Last I heard, I think they have something like 29, 30 political parties, maybe 35. It's, it's a lot of political parties. Here in the U.S., you've got Republican, Democrat, uh, and an independent might make some headway like once in a generation. Right? Last time was Ross Perot in like the early 90s. So this, um, uh, it's, it's a very different, very different ballgame. So uh, Benjamin, in the April 9th election, election Benjamin Netanyahu, his party, the Likud party, won 37 seats. So, he, and he, his party won the most seats, but that does not give him a majority. You have to have 61 seats to get a majority. Okay, so how does that work? How do you get to a majority? Well, what he does then is he goes and he courts other right-wing parties to form a coalition of parties to get to that 61-seat majority. He got up to 60 seats. He got up to 60 seats. He needed one more for a majority. And there was one man who could have given him that majority. And that, of course, was Avigdor Lieberman, whose uh, Yisrael Beitenu party could have joined Netanyahu's right-wing bloc, giving him the majority. But that, uh, that did not happen. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So the coalition gets to uh, coalition needs to get to 61. Well, whoever's um, President uh, Reuven Rivlin, after the election, consults with party leaders about who has the best chance of forming a coalition. Uh, most of the time, the president will choose the member of Knesset whose party won the most seats, but that doesn't always happen. Most of the time it does, though. So in this case, Netanyahu's party, Likud, won the most seats, and so President Rivlin asked him to form a gov- government by assembling a coalition of parties. Netanyahu had four weeks by law from the time of being chosen to form his coalition. The president can give him a two-week extension. Well, folks, Wednesday, 
yes, this past Wednesday, like three days ago, was his last day. He did not form a coalition. So the Likud party drafted a bill to dissolve the Knesset rather than give the president a chance to appoint someone else to form a government, such as Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party, which they basically said they didn't do that because the voters didn't choose Benny Gantz's party. They chose Likud. Um, At least that's the, um, you know, that's that's what they tell everybody. (laughs) Ultimately, they want to hold on to power, right? Um, But I actually do think that statement is correct. The Israeli Knesset then voted 74 to 45 to dissolve and redo the election. So what does this mean? Well, ultimately, it means I was wrong. (laughs) I I figured Netanyahu, it had never happened in history. I figured figured, uh, Netanyahu would, would pull the rabbit out of his hat and be able to form a coalition. I really did not expect this to happen. So this proves that podcast hosts, believe it or not, we can be wrong. But why? Again, because Avigdor Lieberman, whose uh, Beitenu party could have joined Netanyahu's right-wing bloc, giving him the 61-vote ruling majority, chose not to. So, why not? Why did Lieberman turn his back on Netanyahu at this critical juncture? And that's what's great about this article. It it really breaks down uh, kind of the big major reasons why. This is the one that is presented by Lieberman to all of us. And here's what he says. Or here's what the article says, rather. rather. The first and most straightforward holds that Lieberman is truly committed to the policy question that drove him to his latest decision. So yes, there was a big policy issue that Lieberman was not happy with that drove him to basically force the country into redoing the national elections. If you can believe that one man did this, one dude, remarkable. The most straightforward holds that Lieberman is truly committed to the policy question that drove him to his latest decision namely his strong objection to any compromise that allows Haredi men to defer or altogether avoid being conscripted to the Israeli defense forces. Remember, in Israel, everybody has to serve. Men, women, men three years, women two years, unless there are uh, circumstances that would prevent otherwise, but most people have to serve in Israel. There is an exception, the Haredim. So who are the Haredim? Well, ultra-Orthodox Jews, the ones with black suits and wide-brimmed black hats, the long black skirts, uh, very visible, very conservative. As it stands right now, the Haredim, because of a commitment to to Torah, bypass the mandatory enlistment in the IDF. Everybody has to serve, except for the Haredi who are studying Torah, the seminary students, essentially. Uh, Lieberman is very much against this, apparently, so much he was willing to force Israel into another three-month election season instead of compromising, apparently, 
at all on this. And we're going to get into a little bit of the mudslinging back and forth right now because that's essentially what, uh, uh, you know, blame is going around. So let, let's, let's do a little back and forth of, you know, kind of who is saying what about uh, this, particular, uh, this particular instance. Again, Lieberman could have done some compromise with the Heredi situation and we wouldn't be redoing the election. He chose not to, for whatever reason. And look, ostensibly, it could be. It's just, he's, he's doing this on principle. This is so important to him. This is uh, just, uh, you know, he's, he's a politician, right, that actually stands on principle. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, I'm a, I'm a little cynical. Um, but... Uh, I tend, I, and look, I can't judge his heart. There very well could be a little bit of that, or a lot of that. And I'm not going to pretend like he, I, I bet he actually believes that, right? He, I think he actually believes this on, on probably a very strong level. But the question is, is that all that there is at play? I'm going to quickly jump over to an article from the Jerusalem Post where they summarize a bit of the bantering between Likud and Yisrael Beitinu. Israel goes back to elections as Netanyahu fails to form a coalition. This is May 30th. From the Jerusalem Post, Gil Hoffman and Lahav Harkov. Quote, The left asks us why we didn't give blue and white leader Benny Gantz a chance to form the coalition. Right? Remember, Benny Gantz's blue and white party came in second in the April 9th election. Two and a half million people voted as if they had two votes for their party and for Netanyahu, despite knowing about the pre-indictment hearing for the prime minister on corruption charges. They didn't want Gantz. That's an important point. They just uh, Netanyahu's not able to form a coalition, so they just give it to Gantz the guy who the majority of the country did not want. I honestly don't think that's very fair to the rest of the country. According to Zohar, those calling to let Gantz form the government are, quote, saying to give the opportunity to the minority to form the government at the expense of the majority. The majority rules while the minority has rights. That is the meaning of democracy. And that's why pure democracy doesn't work. That's why the founders hated Democracy, because democracy was the 51% uh, acting tyrannically over the 49%, right? So pure democracy, you can't, that's why we have, we are not, that's why the United States of America is not a democracy, and it drives me crazy when I hear people say it all the time that our democracy is at risk, our democracy, blah, blah, blah. Well, we don't even have a democracy. We are a constitutional republic whose representatives, except for the president, are elected democratically. And the president is elected uh, somewhat democratically in that it's the, uh, the electoral college. It's not pure uh, democratic, right? So w- the United States is not a democracy. We are a constitutional republic, uh, which means that basically the Constitution is king, and it is up to our representatives, to uh, enforce and defend that Constitution. Anyway, that's just a little side note there. In the unsuccessful coalition talks, 
the Likud had proposed that as soon as the government would be formed, Lieberman's original conscription law would be presented as written and in his language for the approval of the Knesset plenum. After its approval, there would be more negotiations when the law would be prepared for its final readings. If that agreement is not reached by the end of July, the party said, and in accordance with the decision of the High Court of Justice, the current arrangement that has exempted Herodim from being drafted would expire, and the compulsory service law would apply to all. The ultra-Orthodox parties would therefore have to choose between Lieberman's version of the law or return to the original law, which means full mobilization for Herodim, the Lukud said. Lieberman, you would think Lieberman would be all in that, right? No. Lieberman initially rejected the proposal, saying it was not exactly what he had said all along about the conscription bill needing to be passed into law as is. I mean, so look, he was just really uh, unwilling to compromise. I mean, think about that. Well, um, we're going to use your version of the law, or everybody has to be conscripted, apparently, and... uh, but even that apparently wasn't good enough for Lieberman. The proposal would, was made after the Likud reported that it had secured agreements with 60 MKs from the Likud, Kulanu, United Torah Judaism, Shahs, and the Union of Right-Wing Parties, leaving it only one MK short of a majority coalition. After Kulanu denied that it had signed any documents and insisted it won't sign unless the coalition would include 61 MKs, Luke Likud said the deal with Kulanu was complete and ready to be signed, pending Lieberman joining the government. Hours ahead of the deadline, Lieberman stood his ground on the matter of Heredi conscription. Quote, We repeatedly said we want the original Heredi conscription bill, nothing else, Lieberman said. People claiming that there's a compromise when it was just 10, mil- 10 millimeters of movement are not familiar with the bill. Lieberman said that proposed compromises, quote, empty the bill of all content, and he will not agree to them. The bill, which the defense ministry drafted under Lieberman's leadership, sets rising annual targets for heredity conscription in the IDF. Okay, so, I mean, really kind of begs the question, what does this draft bill actually say? What does this heredity conscription bill actually say? And I was surprised to find out that I could not find the text of the bill anywhere online. Um, The best I could find online is from the Times of Israel, and here is what they say. And again, all of these will be linked up at MideastNewsBrief.com. They say, uh, at present, only about a tenth of the roughly 30,000 eligible ultra-Orthodox males enlist in the IDF each year. The bill championed by Lieberman specifies a gradual, hardly earth-shattering rise to almost 6,000 ultra-Orthodox IDF recruits and an additional 1,000 doing service by 2027. So the the bill, about 30,000 eligible right now, and it specifies a gradual rise. It's kind of difficult to really parse what the problem is because the bill is not available to us. You've got Lieberman saying one thing, and of course you have Netanyahu saying another. Uh, And and again, one more thing that uh, Lieberman said before I get to the Likud statements. He says, 
The bill is good for the IDF, for the Herodim, and for Israel. We have to be reasonable. I am appealing to the Heredi MK's reason. There is no better bill than this. Let it pass with you abstaining. Then the Likud attacked Lieberman fiercely throughout the day. Quote, Lieberman continues to mislead, Likud said in a statement. He says, I will consider to every offer and stalls for a few days. His goal is to end Netanyahu's career and replace him. Now, now we're likely getting a little closer to what is actually going on here. We'll get into this more when we, uh, we're going to jump back to the article from Tablet Magazine in a minute. But don't be surprised if this statement from Likud is true. Remember, this is the guy that resigned from being defense minister when Netanyahu would not invade Gaza after a round of violence from Hamas. Lieberman said we should invade. This was back in, like, November of last year. Netanyahu didn't agree, and Lieberman resigned as defense minister. It very well could be him playing a kind of Game of Thrones and attempting to unseat King Bibi, as as they call him. He's starting his fifth four-year term. I mean, he's been at this since, like, 1996, off and on as prime minister. But I'm going to make a bold prediction here. It's not gonna work. And we'll get to that uh, in a few minutes about, about why. The Likud mocked Lieberman for portraying himself as the defender of secular people after he prevented there being a secular mayor of Jerusalem. Quote, for a few seats and his hunger for power, he is dragging an entire country to elections, the Likud concluded. All right, so let's get into the big reasons why Lieberman might be doing this. If I had to bet a million bucks, I'd open door number four. But I think it's worth contemplating the first three options. First, uh, the problem may very well solve itself. As Haaretz reported last spring, in reality, at least in the mainstream of Haredi society, enlistment is no longer a dirty word. That is in part because the vanguard of Haredi soldiers discovered that it was possible to become a soldier and remain true to the Haredi way of life before and after military service. Second, trying to solve the problem creates other problems. Israel currently spends hundreds of millions of shekels helping Haredi soldiers acclimate into the IDF. And finally, the problem really isn't very much of a problem. The IDF's tooth-to-tail ratio, as they call it, or the ratio between combat and non-combatant soldier, is already the fourth highest in the world. And with warfare growing more sophisticated and more dependent on advanced technologies, the IDF is likely to need less boots on the ground, not more. All these good statistics may help explain why Lieberman himself had found it palatable to share the government with Haredi politicians several times in the past decade without making any non-negotiable demand. 
So Lieberman could be like, look, serving doesn't conflict with your Herodism. The IDF spends a lot to help Heredi acclimate to service anyway. And given the state of modern warfare, it's unlikely you'll need to storm into the Gaza Strip anyway. And, and look, again, I don't want to impugn his motives. I don't know his heart. And I would be surprised if there wasn't some principle involved. I generally believe politicians generally believe what they say, even if they change their views to fit the populace. It's weird, I know, but I think on some level they convince themselves it's true, even if they just changed uh, their belief to fit the, uh, their base or whatever. But I could be wrong on that. But ultimately, you know, I don't know his heart, so I'm careful not to judge in that respect. And then the article continues with principle out of the way. Passion is next on the lineup. Here we go. Lieberman started his political career as Netanyahu's right-hand man. His first big job was director of the prime minister's office during Bibi's first term. Remember, his first term was in 1996. (laughs) Um, He has since come to develop a Dostoevskian dislike, excuse me, for his former patron, calling him on one forgettable, unforgettable occasion, a lying, cheating scoundrel. (laughs) You imagine that. Uh, It's not too hard to imagine what brought about Lieberman's change of heart. Netanyahu is famous for skillfully disabling anyone he perceives to be a potential political threat. And it must have been painful for an ambitious politician like Lieberman to watch his aspirations soar only to hit Bibi's glass ceiling again and again. This week's debacle, many in Israel believe, was Lieberman's ultimate payback, a revenge plot for a scorned underling against his imperious boss. I don't like door two, right? Uh, simple ambition and revenge for not being able to come out on top Maybe there's something like that. Maybe there's some of that. But for him to be willing to make history like he did and take the brunt of forcing Israelis back to the polls with a direct cost to the nation estimated at 800 million shekels or $220 million, that's just the direct cost of putting on the election. Then you have the indirect costs to the economy, given that Israelis get the day off of work For Election Day, that sounds kind of nice, right? Um, So you have the loss of tax revenue, conservatively estimated at 1.5 billion shekels or $413 million, which to us, I mean, I think we print $413 million every like half second uh, here in the U.S. But I mean, to the very small country of Israel, I mean, that's a lot of money. That's a big, big loss to the economy. So uh, again, I... I'm not as sold on this one. This could very well be part of it, and maybe even gives Lieberman a bit of satisfaction, (laughs) given that uh, Netanyahu has been able to kind of outrank him uh, throughout the past 25 or so years. But I have a hard time believing payback is is the primary motive. So reason number one, the principle of the Haredi law. Um, I'm sure that has something to do with it. Number two, payback. Uh, that, that could be a part of it. Let's go to explanation number three. Pragmatism. 
sensing that Netanyahu's days may be numbered. All those investigations and possible indictments don't look too promising. Ah, very interesting, very interesting. Lieberman might have very well acted out of pure reason when he took the step that might be the one to finally put an end to King Bibi's storied career. Believe in this theory, however, and numerous hiccups arise, including the fact that Lieberman refused to endorse any of Netanyahu's rivals on the left and continues to define himself as an ardent right-winger, despite knowing that the right in Israel can govern only in coalition with the Haredim, right? Because they need uh, 61 votes. You got to have the si- or 61 seats. You got to have the Haredim to get 61 seats in the right-wing bloc. A partnership that has shaped the Israeli electoral map for more than 40 years. Put simply, Lieberman can't insist both on having a committed right-wing government and a government formed without the Haredim. And his failure, failure to realize that is jarring. So, as I've reported on this broadcast, Netanyahu is facing a series of indictments on bribery and corruption. Charges which have not gone away. I really haven't talked about it since episode five of this uh, podcast, but the, they're still there. It's still ongoing. It's still an investigation, and it's still a, a major issue with the Netanyahu's. Um, go back, and if you need to, go back and listen to episode five of, five of the broadcast if you want a summary of the charges as well as some uh, commentary by Alan Dershowitz, who just dismantles those charges handily in Jedi fashion. Um, but Gantz could be wanting more time for Netanyahu to officially begin his fifth term so that in the interim, the AG can take down Netanyahu and thus the chief rival of Lieberman would disappear. Possibly, I guess, but really Netanyahu is way too savvy not to mention a political genius who operates on the world stage like Michael Jordan in the NBA Finals. I mean, this guy's the best of the best when it comes to politicians. Door number three is highly unlikely, in my opinion. And Lieberman has to know that. Um, But maybe he's given it a try. I could be wrong. All right, so door, door number one, pure principle. Door number two, payback. Door number three, let's wait it out and see if my uh, chief political uh, foe can be, uh, can be removed from my midst. I need a good P for that. I need a, I need a third P if I had only had more time to... Um, uh, there's there's got to be one, but I, I, okay, I can't think of it. Um, but let's look behind door number four and see if there is a better solution or a better answer, I should say. To me, this one rings the most true. Again, I don't know, right? We're just going over options. Ultimately, I don't know. And I'm very careful about judging somebody's heart. So this is, this is speculation, 
but I think it's it's good for us to to know the options so that we know kind of what we're what we're dealing with in this in this incident to put a little context behind what is going on because it is really really random right for a, for one guy to be responsible for the Israelis redoing the election that's truly truly amazing all right unless that is you believe and what's behind door number four? The Israeli com- columnist Avika Bigman advanced another theory in Yisrael Hayom. Hayom means today, uh, so Israel Today magazine. Uh, incidentally, I could not get this article in English. Uh, Israel Hayom has an English site, but this, they did not translate this article into English, so I had to Google, <laughs> I had to Google translate it. Um, which argues that Lieberman, like a grizzly in Denali, was not motivated by anything save for disinterested, instinctual hunger. Craving more political power, the natural state of any politician, he spotted an opportunity to get some and took it, caring little about the immense damage he'd done to the stability of the political system and the state's coffers. Like a card shark, He might have just gambled that a dramatic move backed by an ideological veneer could only serve him well, gaining him a few thousand more voters and cementing his status as kingmaker, even if the outcome of the next electoral round ends up being exactly the same. Judging by Lieberman's career, that's a very likely explanation. Why is that? About a year after calling Netanyahu a scoundrel and storming out of his government in 2015, Lieberman returned to Bibi's orbit, trading his old job as Minister of Foreign Affairs for a shinier post as Minister of Defense before resigning once again two years later. I like this one. I like door number four. And I think the last sentence pretty much sums it up. Um, Here is a quote from that article referenced in Tablet Mag uh, from Israel Hyom. Uh, again, Google translated into English, so it's probably not perfect, but it's, I would, it's pretty amazing <laughs> how, how good of a job it does. It's very coherent. I mean, as if it was uh, tr- translated uh, directly by, by a human. Uh, and this was just automatic. Pretty, uh, it's pretty remarkable what we can do today. But here's the main conclusion of that article um, in Israel Today by Avika Bigman. Quote, commentators mainly on the left explain this week that Netanyahu has become a burden. Finish the horse, quote, neutralized by the investigations and a host of other explanations. The truth is much simpler. One additional Knesset mandate would change the picture from one end to the other. And that can't be overstated. Netanyahu had 60 seats. He just needed one more, if you can fathom that. I mean, imagine being him <laughs> these past six weeks. Oh, my gosh. And then coming to find out earlier this week, you couldn't get one more Knesset member <clears throat> to get that majority. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. But, I mean, uh, at this point, Bibi's got to be pretty tough, <laughs> tougher than nails. So I'm sure he's doing just fine. Um, 32,000 votes in total, and the whole choir would return to singing about, quote, the magician and the sorcerer, Benjamin Netanyahu, right? That's how they refer to him, 
I mean, they expected him. I was listening to Israel uh, talk radio uh, earlier this week, and they were expecting him to be able to pull the rabbit out of his hat and form a coalition. It did not happen. What we have witnessed in recent days is a blatant and transparent display of raw power. Lieberman is neither an impressive leader nor a great ideologue, but he understands the internal laws of power. As of this writing, it is impossible to know whether a government will be formed or not. So this, this was written before the, um, uh, before the Knesset vote, voted to dissolve and redo the elections. But in every development, the basic lesson of the week remains. If Lieberman is a part of it, the next government will be neutralized and limited. And everything will depend on the will of one man. In Lieberman's power game, we are all hostages. And then the, uh, the article from Tablet Mag continues, but if Lieberman's latest move was indeed just a naked power play, he may soon have a very rude awakening. While it is profoundly foolish to try and divine the outcome of the upcoming elections in September, it is very likely that the results the next time around will look either the same or likelier still hand the right-wing bloc a sturdier victory. Did you get that? It is very likely that the results next time around will look either the same or likelier still hand the right-wing bloc a sturdier victory. That's my hunch. I'll get to this in a second. It is, for example, and this is great proof right here, it is highly likely that the 138,598 Israelis who voted for Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Sheked's failed new right party will support either the United Right or Likud, as would many, if not most, of the 118,031 who cast their vote for the Zahut party. Right? Those are all wasted votes. Because why? Because they did not, you, in order to win a seat in Knesset, you, your party has to at least get 3.25% of the Israeli vote. If not, those votes just go into the abyss. They disappear to the netherworld. These previously wasted votes, neither party made it to the Knesset last time around, could be worth four, five, maybe six mandates. And Haredi Israelis, incensed by what they perceive as a bigoted attack on their way of life, are likely to come out and vote in even greater numbers, which, being a well-organized and largely hierarchical community guided by influential rabbis, may deliver them a few additional Knesset seats. Let me repeat that. 138,598 Israelis who voted on the right uh, as well as 118,031 of the Zahut party, essentially had their votes wasted because they voted for parties that did not reach the 3.25% vote threshold needed to be able to have a seat in the Knesset. Imagine if just an eighth, uh, uh, six of those voters switched to a more viable party 
like Likud or the United Right Party, parties that actually won seats in the Knesset, Lieberman becomes irrelevant. Yes, irrelevant. Another 32,000 seats, as mentioned previously, and the right has a 61-seat majority, and Lieberman's antics are shoved to the electoral graveyard. And if I'm Netanyahu, I say, adios, sayonara, au revoir, shalom. Oh, and by the way, no defense minister position, no dog catcher position, adios. And my prediction, come September 17th, the right comes out with a vengeance, and Lieberman is irrelevant. The, uh, the coalition of right-wing parties get to their 61-seat-plus majority, and uh, Lieberman ends up getting actually less than, um, than what he could have had had he done a compromise. So that is my prediction. We'll see if that prediction comes to pass or not, but I think the right, uh, especially the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox, are going to be ultra-motivated to get out um, to the polls, and they are going to, um, uh, they're going to deliver a a strong, uh, stronger majority. So that is my big overview of Israeli elections. Um, I am disappointed, to say the least, that they have to go back to the polls. But I guess if there is one thing that I've come to learn is that our timing is not always God's timing. I have learned that over and over and over and over again in my life. Look, I, what I care about ultimately and chiefly, and I, and I hope that we all care about as well, more than anything else, is that God's kingdom comes in a powerful way and in a full way to the Middle East. And it could be very well that even though this is an obnoxious ploy by Lieberman, uh, perhaps out of pragmatism, perhaps out of a power play, perhaps out of a, a payback, perhaps principle. Hey, Michael, they're my four, four Ps. Um, you know, uh, perhaps that is happening and God is allowing or causing that to happen because it is better ultimately that the, uh, that the elections happen in September and that things even come out better than they are currently, which is my prediction of what will actually happen. It might be better that the peace plan comes out at the end of September instead of the end of June. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just, I, I don't. I mean, who of us is omniscient but God? So maybe it is. Maybe that is better. And so I ultimately, uh, even though it's obnoxious and I'm ready to move on to other things, uh, it's apparently not the time. It's apparently time for another round of Israeli elections, and of course, we will be covering that here on Mideast News Brief. I just want to hit uh, one little news story that, that I saw before we go. I'm doing pretty good on time. I'm at 55 minutes, so we, we could end this in an hour. I, I, just, I'm, I'm, I can't believe it. Um, that's what happens when you don't try to cover 8 million subjects in, uh, in one broadcast. 
<laughs> I, I was doing a little bit of, bit of research earlier, and I found this article from BreakingIsraelNews.com, December 13th, 2017. This was when, when uh, Rex Tillerson was Secretary of State. Remember that guy? Uh, boy, don't you just love Mike Pompeo? Man, that guy is just, oh, what, an, what an improvement. Um, but anyway, according to Rex Tillerson, in this article from December 13th, 2017, you want to hear the difference between a CEO of a multinational, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars organization, bureaucracy, and a, and a divorce lawyer out of New York City. You want to know the differences between the two of them? You're, you're about to see it. <laughs> you're about to see it. Tillerson says, on December 13th, 2017, Jerusalem embassy move at least three years away. Well, now, isn't that interesting? It's not going to be anything that happens right away referring to the, move, the, the embassy move, probably no earlier than three years out, and that's pretty ambitious, cautioned Tillerson in a speech at the State Department, the New York Times reported. Isn't that something? That's the difference between, the, between a guy that's in charge of a huge multinational bureaucracy and a divorce lawyer. Who's the divorce lawyer I'm referring to? Well, the New York City divorce lawyer and now United States ambassador to Israel, David Freeman, who uh, Trump and uh, uh, later after Tillerson's out and Friedman's in charge of this thing. He's like, ah, yeah, we can move in a few months. Yeah. In fact, we'll get it. We'll get it there less than six months. They're actually about exactly six months after Tillerson made this statement. May 14th, 2018. The embassy opens in Jerusalem. And Tillerson, in this, in this uh, statement, said three years was really ambitious. It just goes to show that it's possible uh, for government to be efficient, but you got to have the right people involved. All right, and that will do it for this week's edition of Midi Snooze Beast. Midi Snooze Brief. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app and donate to Midi Snooze Brief if you so feel led. Remember to visit midisnoozebrief.com for the show notes and links to all the articles referenced in this broadcast. And remember, I am going to be gone the next two Fridays, but do not fear. We have Midi Snooze Brief coming your way as I will be broadcasting, as I mentioned earlier, a pre recorded interview with missionary and recording artist Thani Abu Hamid about what the Bible has to say about the modern state of Israel. Is it a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? Is it a fluke? Tune in to this fascinating discussion. You will not want to miss it. Thanks again for joining us. Alaska, let's do this.